Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Welcome to our second episode in our Consumer Protection Regulation podcast. In our first episode, we looked at such topics as who regulates and who enforces consumer protection legislation in Ireland, who enjoys that protection as consumers, including those in-scope non-legal persons and the regulatory framework. Thank you again to to Nora Bozang for uh, sharing her expertise in this area. In this second instalment, we we will delve into such specifics as credit-related regulation. So if if we start um, with that, Nora, you've given us a broad overview of the protections applying under the CPC and including the general principles applying to all in-scope customers and the remainder of the code in general. Um, Can you give our listeners an overview of the credit-related statutory provisions that apply to doing business with consumers under domestic and EU rules? Certainly, Cathy, and it's very nice to be back. Thank you for having me. Just to say, every chapter of the CPC could do with a podcast episode of its own. Also, the Code is currently undergoing substantive review with a discussion paper on the Code having issued in October of last year, October 2022. It's to be followed this year and next year by a formal consultation on revisions to the code. So it looks like in terms of a substantive reissuance of the code that it'll be 2024 at the very earliest that that'll happen. Also, the CPC from a lending perspective has been relatively significantly amended in relation to personal credit within the scope of the consumer credit regulations and in a more limited way for mortgage credit within the scope of the mortgage credit regulations. And I'll go into the scope of those regulations a little bit later on. So, Cathy, going back to your question and just by way of overview, in addition to the CPC, the principal consumer protections relating to lenders to consumers are the Consumer Credit Act 1995, the EU Consumer Credit Regulations 2010, the EU Mortgage Credit Regulations 2016, and what was the EU Unfair Contract Terms Regulations 1995, now with effect from the 29th of November, the Consumer Rights Act 2022. And all of those rules relate to the more limited category of consumer, i.e. the classic definition of an individual acting outside of their trade, business or profession, i.e. as interpreted for private consumption needs. So looking at the CCA 1995 um, first, so this has been enforced for some time and remains in place, albeit amended in some respects with respect to credit, uh, to which the consumer credit regulations and the mortgage credit regulations apply. Uh, It applies to consumer credit, i.e. the 1995 Act, applies to consumer credit agreements coming into effect from 13 May 1996. And there are various conduct of business requirements set out in the code on, in the Act, including those relating to the advertising of loans, also the issuing execution of and the required contents of credit agreements, 
duties arising during the term of the agreement, such as a duty to supply information and restrictions on contacting consumers. And these apply in conjunction with the restrictions on unsolicited contact in the Consumer Protection Code and duties arising on termination, such as an early repayment or enforcement. So the CCA 1995, in addition to dealing with personal lending, also includes mortgage lending specific requirements. Now, these are referred to in the 1995 Act as housing loans, and I'll go into those later on. And also to say where the lender is a credit institution, so as currently defined, that includes banks and retail credit firms. Customer charge notification obligations also apply under the 1995 Act. And just to bear in mind that those are all customer charges, not just consumer charges. So one key point to note in relation to the CCA 1995 is the effect of non-compliance with Section 30 of the Act. And as I mentioned before, it applies Section 30 to all credit agreements within the scope of the Act entered into on or after 13 May 1996, other than, so this is excluded from Section 30, housing loans, overdrafts, or credit cards. So personal credit within the scope of the EU consumer credit regulations is also excluded from Section 30. Although there's a technical point there, Section 30 still applies to guarantees within the scope of the regulations, i.e. guarantees of credit to which the consumer credit regulations apply. Now, just to say that Section 30 imposes various requirements in relation to the contents, things like putting in uh, penalty charges uh, and details in relation to costs, execution and issuance to the consumer and the guarantor of the credit agreement and guarantees. And if a lender breaches these requirements, the key point here is that the lender is not entitled to enforce the credit agreement or any guarantee or related security. So that's a pretty dire consequence for a lender. And it's why you will have seen a lot of case law uh, where individuals largely unsuccessfully will have claimed that they were acting as consumers um, for the purposes of getting the benefit of Section 30 of the Act and then have claimed that they the uh, protections weren't given to them so that the credit agreements and security were unenforceable. Um, the effect of the exclusions from Section 30 is that it's most likely to apply to more longer term consumer personal lending, i.e. if you entered into a personal lending agreement before 11 June 2010 or where borrowed after 11 June 2010, where the personal lending exceeds 75,000 um, being the threshold for the consumer credit regulations. So Section 30 is not to be forgotten and um, uh, should be scrutinised by lenders. Um, the next set of regulations is the EU Consumer Credit Regulations 2010. These largely apply to credit agreements coming into operations on or after 11 June 2010. So these regulations relate to credit to consumers that is not secured on real property or made for the purposes of buying or keeping real property. So uh, property related lending is excluded from the consumer credit regulations and the amounts within the scope of the regulations are between 200 euro and 75,000 euro. So examples of facilities within the scope of the regulations would be cash loans, 
overdrafts, payable on demand and credit card facilities. Now, in terms of the matters covered by the regulations, uh, they include, and these apply in conjunction with some provisions of the CPC, I'll come on to that, uh, but the matters covered by the regulations include advertising, providing pre-contract information, quite significant obligations there, an obligation to assess credit worthiness, which is uh, actually to be strengthened, and information to be included in a credit agreement. So just to talk here about the Consumer Credit Directive and the fact that it's a maximum harmonization measure and what that means to listeners in real terms. So unlike, for example, the Mortgage Credit Directive, the Consumer Credit Directive, i.e. that which is implemented by the 2010 regulations, it's what's called a maximum harmonization measure. So this means that, and you will have similar concepts under uh, part of the e-money directive or uh, generally under PSD2 and a significant part of MIFID to um, essentially maximum harmonization means that in relation to the matters specifically covered by the directive, member states are not authorized to maintain or introduce national rules other than those provided for by the directive. So this restricts member states such as Ireland from adopting stricter rules than those provided for in the Consumer Credit Directive, even if those rules would achieve a higher level of consumer protection. So as listeners can appreciate in a union involving 27 member states, involving various states of evolution and maturity of their consumer credit markets, the application of this principle has been criticized on the basis that it imposes a lowest common denominator in the area of consumer protection. And the relevance of the application of the principle for our listeners is that significant requirements of the CPC and the CCA 1995 have been disapplied to consumer credit within the scope of the Consumer Credit Directive. That does seem counterintuitive, uh, but it is the case. So um, the regulations apply in conjunction with certain provisions of the CPC and the CCA 1995, but those provisions of the code and the 1995 Act that apply are less extensive than apply in the case of mortgage lending, which I'll come on to. So the next regulations I just want to refer to are the EU mortgage credit regulations. They came into effect in 2016 and applied to mortgage consumer credit agreements coming into effect on or after 21 March 2016. So unsurprisingly, the main category of consumer credit covered by the regulations is that which is secured by a mortgage over residential property. Now, this is the case whether or not the secured property is the consumer's principal home. Uh, interestingly, and what might escape our listeners uh, otherwise, is that the regulations apply also to consumer credit that is either completely unsecured or secured over other assets, where the loan is for the purposes of buying or retaining real property. Now, this is likely to be a relatively limited category. It could apply, for example, in the case of a high net worth individual who, for whatever reason, wants to borrow money to add to fund uh, an addition to his home for reasons uh, known to him he or he, him or her. He doesn't want to have that 
loans secured over the home. So he may or she may offer an investment portfolio uh, for the purposes of the security for the loan. And because that loan is for the purposes of buying or retaining real property, it will be within the scope of the regulations, even though it's not secured over property. So the matters covered by the EU mortgage credit regulations, they're more extensive than those covered by the EU consumer credit regulations. They deal with matters such as advertising, providing information, calculation of the APRC, which is the annual percentage rate of charge, giving advance notification on interest rate changes. Those provisions don't particularly sit well with those in the CPC, which I'll come on to. Assessing creditworthiness, valuations, cooling off and reflection periods, arrears, and obligations where the bank provides advice to the consumer as an additional standalone activity. Now, this is likely to be relatively limited. Most of the applicable provisions of the CCA 1995 and the CPC continue to apply to credit within the scope of the EU mortgage credit regulations because the EU mortgage credit directive, which is implemented by the regulations, is not maximum harmonization uh, in, in nature with a couple of exceptions. So then just to go on to the housing loan provisions of the Consumer Credit Act 1995 set out in part nine of the Act, and these apply in conjunction with the EU mortgage credit regulations. So I just wanted to make a couple of points in relation to the scope of housing loans. First of all, in addition to the usual mortgage loan with which we'd all be familiar, so a loan for the purposes of financing the individual's principal residence, a housing loan under the CCA includes business lending, where the loan is secured on the borrower's principal home. And this results from changes made to the CCA 1995 with effect from 1 August 2004. The objective of those changes were that where you had security over an individual's home, uh, even if the purpose of the loan was for business lending, it should get the benefit of statutory protections. So, it's important to note that the scope of housing loans under the CCA 1995 and under the mortgage credit regulations is not identical. So there is an overlap, it, obviously the mortgage over uh, an individual's home, but the EU mortgage credit regulations also cover consumer unsecured lending, where it's made for the purposes of buying or retaining real property, as I've mentioned, while in general, the housing loan provisions of the Consumer Credit Act 1995 apply to secured credit only. So that's one point to note. Uh, also, the EU mortgage credit regulations apply to consumer activity proper, i.e. it does not apply to lending entered into for business purposes. And in contrast, as we've seen, a housing loan under the CCA 1995 includes an individual borrowing for business purposes where the loan is secured over the borrower's principal home. So matters covered by the housing loan provisions of the 1995 Act include advertising, the calculation of what's called the APR, early repayment, valuations, legal costs, insurance, and the information to be included in the agreement. And small amendments have been made to those provisions for credit within the scope of the mortgage credit regulations. So that's the overview, Cathy. You mentioned the EU mortgage credit regulations and the housing loan provisions of the CCA 95. When a typical individual agrees with their mortgage lender to take out a mortgage to fund a house, 
which they intend to live in as their home, uh, which is the usual scenario. What rules apply in that scenario? Okay, yeah, good point, Cathy, because that's the the type of mortgage with which most of us uh, would be concerned. It's the typical scenario. Um, so, in such a scenario, the following apply. So, the EU mortgage credit regulations, the housing loan provisions of the CCA 1995, with a limited number of amendments, certain general provisions of the CCA 1995 relating to credit agreements, those which continue to apply to housing loans. Some are excluded for housing loans, but some continue to apply. And then general requirements of the CPC 2012 and those provisions of the code that are specific to, lend, to lending, uh, i.e. it's referred to as credit in the code, and others that are specific to mortgage lending. So there's a tapestry of requirements uh, there, as you can see. Um, I should also mention that should the loan fall into arrears or pre-arrears, the code of conduct on mortgage arrears would also apply. And to be frank, as we can see, this is a far more complicated picture than ideally should be the case. So my book variously describes the regime as fragmented, confusing, labyrinthine, and entirely unsatisfactory. So it's no wonder that the unnecessarily complex uh, regulatory conduct of business regime related to lending, it's been consistently criticized as an issue by consumer protection advocates such as FLAC. And just by way of example, I've mentioned mortgage interest changes, which is an important point uh, for uh, lenders and for borrowers. Uh, so by way of example, as to the, the way in which the requirements don't necessarily sit together that well, the EU mortgage credit regulations 2016, they require advanced personal notification to the consumer of any change in the borrowing rate, including the revised repayment amount. So you can see there, if the revised repayment amount is required to be notified in advance, that's clearly a personal notification to each consumer. Under the code, a minimum 30 days advance notice of changes in the borrowing rate is required. Now, there are exceptions under the CPC for tracker interest rate mortgage lending. And in that case, the lender must make the notification within 10 days of becoming aware of the change. So it does leave open the possibility of the lender uh, telling the borrower after the changes come into effect. Um, but no tracker-based exemption is provided for under the mortgage credit regulations. So you have that requirement under the, under the mortgage credit regula regulations to provide advanced personal notification of any change in the borrowing rate. And it may be tricky to do this where the change is in a publicly sourced tracker rate outside of the lender's control. So in any event, a basic takeaway for listeners in relation to consumer credit rules is that it's not just the case that, for example, for consumer mortgage lending entered into today, just the mortgage credit regulations 2016 apply. And in the case of consumer personal lending, just the consumer credit regulations 2010 apply. They're each supplemented to a greater or lesser extent by the Consumer Protection Code and the Consumer Credit Act 1995.
Nora, I really like uh, your metaphor of a tapestry because as a practitioner trying to uh, fit all these together or even a mosaic, you know, trying to fit them all together to get them to align and work is, is a real challenge um, in practice. Um, so moving on, I know that there have been a lot of disputes before the courts where borrowers have claimed that lenders have not complied with their obligations, such as under the EU unfair contract terms regulations. Can you give us an overview of those regulations? So thanks, Cathy. Very happy to. Um, this is an area that has been increasingly litigated before the courts, although we may have seen the high watermark for this, as the courts haven't been particularly receptive to arguments made under the unfair contract terms regime. So first off, the unfair contract terms regulations when they were in force, applied to all types of contracts which had not been individually negotiated, concluded online or offline after 31 December 1994 between a seller of goods or supplier of services and a consumer. And as we've mentioned, the Consumer Rights Act uh, 2022 has uh, now been commenced and the unfair contract terms regulations have been uh, revoked, but obviously the Consumer Rights Act will uh, apply only to new contracts entered into after commencement of the Act, so the unfair contract terms regulations will continue to have some relevance. Uh, the consumer is defined under both regimes, under the unfair contract terms regulations and under the Consumer Rights Act 2022 uh, as the uh, it's in line with the classic description of an individual acting outside of their trade business or profession. So under the Consumer Rights Act 2022, the regime will apply to contracts whether or not individually negotiated, which means that even bespoke terms agreed with the consumer will be subject to the regime. And a key point to know in relation to uh, the unfair contract terms regime and the Consumer Rights Act 2022 is that an unfair term is not binding on the consumer and it may give rise to a repayment obligation for the amounts charged to the consumer under it. Thanks uh, Nora. So how have the courts applied the unfair contract terms regime in Ireland to date? Well that's a very interesting area Cathy and to date in a financial services context no contractual term has been found to be unfair by the Irish courts, reflecting that largely unsympathetic attitude uh, that I referenced earlier uh, to technical arguments. Although in 2001, the courts did strike out as unfair clauses included in a standard house building contract. Now, that case was brought by the then Director for Consumer Affairs and was supported by the Law Society. Um, but... The fact that this is the case should not by any means be taken to be a carte blanche for the industry to ignore the unfair contract terms regime. So the Irish courts have accepted following EU authority that in disputes between consumers and suppliers of services, even where the fairness of the term has not been challenged in court by the consumer, the Irish courts have an obligation to assess the potential unfairness of the contractual terms of their own motion and to rule that a consumer is not bound by an unfair term. So that's quite a sea change. Um, it started off with Cunahan, um, uh, judgment by Mr. Justice Barrett. So this duty has now been formalised under the new Consumer Rights Act 2022. 
On the unfair contract terms front, as matters currently stand, the main risk area for regulated lenders is that the central bank deems the contractual terms to be in breach of the transparency requirements of either the unfair contract terms regulations or the Consumer Rights Act 2022, likely in conjunction with other regulatory requirements and administrative sanctions are then imposed. Right, so has the central bank imposed uh, administrative sanctions on any regulated firm arising from any breach of unfair contract terms legislation? Yes, Cathy. In fact, this is a relatively recent development. As you know, under the tracker mortgage examination, a succession of administrative sanctions have been imposed on lenders. And in fact, uh, contravention of the transparency requirements of the then unfair contract terms regulations 1995 was one of the regulatory breaches under which fines of over 18 million, almost 38 million and an excess of 100 million euro uh, were imposed by the central bank on three banks in 2020, 2021 and September 2022. Also, the legislative framework for unfair contract terms has been amended and strengthened under the Consumer Rights Act 2022, which may in fact be argued to have gone too far, at least in a financial services context. So in this act, there are certain provisions that are automatically blacklisted and inclusion of such a blacklisted provision in a consumer contract is a criminal offence and may in certain circumstances give rise to a fine amounting to up to 4% of annual turnover. And some of these blacklisted terms may have relevance to pretty standard retail lending provisions, for example, restrictions on set off. So one blacklisted term is any term that hinders or excludes a consumer's ability to exercise a legal right or remedy. And it certainly seems to be the case that a restriction imposed on a consumer's ability to exercise set off may fall into this category. So the, the big takeaway message here is that lenders and any other businesses entering into contracts with consumers ignore the unfair contract terms regime at their peril. And at the very least, this could be a costly mistake and one that could cause significant regulatory engagement and ensuing reputational damage to the firm's business. And for those of our listeners who might not have, have a legal background, could you yeah. explain the term blacklisted? Blacklisted means that it's prohibited in all circumstances. So there's no sort of consideration as to whether the term satisfies the statutory criteria for unfairness uh, set out in the uh, regulations and to be included in the bill. Basically, if a provision is blacklisted, it's prohibited. And uh, so, as I've said, the, 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 the consequences of that are pretty serious. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, Nora. So turning to SMEs, what are the categories of borrowers to which the SME regulations 2015 apply? Okay, um, so we have what's the umbrella category that you've referred to of SMEs being micro, small and medium-sized enterprises. And these are businesses employing fewer than 250 people 
and having one or both of an annual turnover of 50 million or less and or an annual balance sheet total of 43 million or less on a group or standalone basis. So a pretty broad category there, as you can see. Now, more exacting requirements under the regulations apply in respect of micro and small enterprises. So these are enterprises employing fewer than 50 people and whose annual turnover and or annual balance sheet total amount to 10 million or less. And excluded from the regulations are credit to an SPV or multi-lender credit, such as syndicate facilities. And a similar exclusion, interestingly, does not apply under the CPC. So even where credit to an SPV or a syndicate facility uh, or borrowers is involved, uh, the CPC will apply um, to customers and then the more uh, specific requirements will apply to consumers uh, where that 3 million threshold is not exceeded. Listeners should also note that in addition to the SME regulations 2015, we've talked about that um, category of consumer under the CPC being a corporate whose annual threshold does not exceed 3 million in the previous uh, financial year on a group or standalone basis. Uh, so the CPC will continue to apply to business lending where this is a regulated activity of the lender and the borrower involved is a consumer under the CPC. And obviously the general principles also apply where the borrower is a customer and the activity is regulated. So it's not just a question of the SMEs regulations sitting on their own, the CPC applies as well. Thanks, Nora. And I think you were going to mention two other categories of regulatory requirements. Um, they're likely to be relevant, in particular, in the context of financial services. Oh, yes. Yeah. Thanks, Cathy. Um, I did want to mention the distance marketing regulations 2004 and the Consumer Protection Act 2007. Now, each of them implement EU rules. So the distance marketing directive and the unfair commercial practices directive. So taking the distance marketing regulations 2004 first, they specifically apply to contracts for financial services, including lending between a supplier and a consumer entered into after 15 February 2005. So in order for the regulations to apply, the engagement between the parties must have been entirely at a distance. So over the Internet, via the telephone or by post, so up to and including the time of entry into the credit agreement, the parties have not been simultaneously physically present. And there is another criteria that also needs to apply in order to qualify as a distance contract. The lender must have what's called an organizational framework in place for the conclusion of credit agreements exclusively via distance means. So the effect of that criteria is that if you have consumer credit agreements concluded via distance means on an occasional or a once off basis outside such an organizational framework. So the normal mode of conduct within of contact with the lenders face to face, then that's out of scope of the regime. Uh, but just to say, should as a result of the pandemic, a lender decide to put in place an organizational framework dealing with matters such as staffing and IT to enable 
credit agreements to be entered into exclusively via distance means, then necessary measures need to be taken to ensure compliance with the distance marketing regulations. And if you could go into a little bit of detail about the distance marketing regulation. Yeah, they they really, Cathy, they deal with two specific areas, essentially. Uh, one, the provision of pre-contractual information and the contractual terms to consumers. And two, the ability of consumers to withdraw from credit agreements within 14 days. So an important point to note is that for credit within the scope of the consumer credit regulations, or the mortgage credit regulations, the disclosure requirements of the distance marketing regulations are largely replaced by those set out in the applicable regulations. So, for example, the provision of the ESIS under the mortgage credit regulations, the ESIS, will replace the disclosure requirements under the distance marketing regulations or the provision of the SECI under the consumer credit regulations will replace what's required under the distance marketing regulations. But the distance marketing regulations will still have relevance uh, in some scenarios, for example, to a mortgage loan that's not within the scope of the mortgage credit regulations, for example, where it's been concluded before 21 March 2016. So, the distance marketing regulations have particular relevance to uh, any entity that has acquired a portfolio of loans where those loans have entered, been entered into before 21 March 2016 uh, and it's necessary to ensure that the distance marketing regulations were complied with because a key point for listeners to note is that if the disclosure i.e the information rate related requirements set out in the regulations if they're not complied with by a lender the contract is unenforceable now unlike section 30 of the cca 1995 a judicial discretion exists to decide otherwise where the court is satisfied that the non-compliance was not deliberate has not prejudiced the consumer and it would be just inequitable in the circumstances to dispense with the obligation but it's obviously an uncomfortable place for a lender to be in to be arguing those matters in court and uh, much better to have got it right at the start. Okay Nora and what about the Consumer Protection Act 2007? Okay um, so we're coming towards the end of our um, of our trip through applicable requirements the Consumer Protection Act 2007, as I said, it implemented the Unfair Commercial Practices Directive. And with effect from 1 May 2007, it prohibits unfair, misleading and aggressive commercial practices and also other specified blacklisted, i.e. prohibited in all circumstances, commercial practices that are engaged in by a trader either before, during or after a transaction with the consumer relating to services which include banking, insurance or lending. And it's been said that the provisions of the Act, uh, they operate as a safety net. So they fill in the gaps that are not regulated by other EU sector specific rules as you've seen, it's the commercial practices that are the target of the prohibition and the term commercial practice is widely defined. It includes any commercial communication, marketing or advertising and any representation by a trader during the life cycle of the product or service. So any commercial practice that is unfair, misleading and aggressive or uh, that is blacklisted is prohibited under the Act. Now, other than for specified blacklisted prohibited practices, in order to be banned under the Act, the practice must be likely to distort 
the transactional behavior of the average consumer. But a practice may fall foul of the prohibition in the act, whether or not a transaction actually occurs in relation to the financial service. Now, in terms of relevance, up to now, the preferred regulatory approach seems to be that the central bank targets impermissible conduct by regulated financial services providers under its CPC rather than the Consumer Protection Act. But the Consumer Protection Act did feature in the framework document that was issued by the central bank to lenders in the tracker mortgage investigation. And lenders were required to determine whether their practices had complied with legislation, including the Consumer Protection Act 2007. So it's not to be ignored. We've covered a huge amount today. Um, we've covered the three categories of beneficiaries of consumer protections as borrowers. We've also covered the high-level regulatory obligations applicable um, to lending to consumers being CPC, Consumer Credit Act 95, EU Consumer Credit Regulations 2010, the Mortgage Regulations 2016, Distance Marketing Regulations 2004, and the, and the Consumer Protection Act 2007, and as you characterised it. And it's clear that the interactions and the interplay between each of them is not straightforward. So is there anything else that we need to be looking out for? So that's absolutely right, Cathy. And we have touched on it, but I should also mention the Consumer Rights Act 2022. I know I sound like a repeating record here, but it has been commenced uh, with effect from the 29th of November. And it applies to new consumer contracts entered into after that date with the onus on the supplier trader to sh show that an individual was not acting as a consumer. And specific provisions of the Act extend to the provision of a financial service, including banking, insurance, lending, personal pensions, investment services or payment services or financial advice. And these include a strengthening of the unfair contract terms regime. Also included in the Act is the implication of mandatory standards in the contract between the trader and the consumer relating to the provision of services. So these mandatory standards that are now implied include that the service is of a nature and quality that can reasonably be expected to achieve any result that the consumer has made known to the supplier at or before the conclusion of the contract and which was accepted by the supplier and the onus is on the supplier to show that it did not accept any such result. A similar standard is included regarding fitness for purpose. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure about the utility of terms of that nature in a highly regulated sphere such as financial services. It is the case that some implied terms contained in the Act and already implied under existing law are clearly appropriate. For example, that the service is supplied by the supplier with reasonable care and skill. But the implication of subjective terms, such as those that I've just referred to, are likely to result in the inclusion by lenders and other suppliers in their standard consumer contracts of disclaimers of these standards. And to do so may be viewed as a necessary risk management technique, particularly in relation to um, areas which the lender might view as being outside of its control, such as, for example, the provision of variable rate loans, foreign currency loans or leveraged elements. As I've said, the performance of elements, including the price of the contract, may be viewed in these circumstances as outside of the lender's control. 
And the act needs to be scrutinized very carefully by the financial services industry. So the industry is clear on its implications. I might add that those mandatory terms um, talking about the reasonable expectations of the consumer, they were actually not accepted by the English government prior to the uh, implementation of the Consumer Rights Act 2015 in the UK on the basis that uh, it would just result in uh, too many disclaimers and didn't actually provide uh, a real benefit to the consumer. So it's interesting that uh, the approach has been taken in this jurisdiction to include uh, these mandatory terms. I should just for completeness mention the Credit Reporting Act 2013. Uh, it came into force on the 27th of January 2014. It applies to lenders within the state, whether regulated or unregulated. Included in its requirements is the reporting to the Central Credit Register of specified information. Um, it applies where any proposed or actual borrower, whether an individual or a corporate, is Irish resident or where the credit agreement is subject to Irish law. So also the Financial Services and Pensions Ombudsman Act 2017, under which a complaint may be made to the Financial Services and Pensions Ombudsman by a complainant in respect of the conduct of a financial service provider involving a financial service. And these services include banking, savings, insurance, loans and stockbroking, among others. So I guess the takeaways from the listener's perspective are the complex nature of the current consumer credit regulatory regime and also to be aware of the very wide ranging and possibly in a financial services context unintended implication of the Consumer Rights Act 2022 on contractual dealings with consumers. Thanks, Nora. So, I mean, that, that's the end of our, our discussion. And um, that was a really extensive and comprehensive tour of consumer protection regulation in Ireland. So I'm very grateful to you um, for sharing your expertise. Thank you, Cathy. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful. I'm sure you did. Um, and we would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.